0: So how's it going? You've had uh, 14, I think, roughly sermons since I last stood here. Uh, Have you done all of those? Is that all going well? Ticked it all off? We're ready to move on? Excellent. Let's pray then, shall we? Uh, Lord, help us when we're less than honest with ourselves. (laughs) And help us now as we come to your word that it might light fires in our hearts fires that change us because we come with hearts that want to hear and put into practice what we hear but we know that the spirit is willing but our flesh can be weak and we want to kill off our flesh in the name of Jesus that we might be the people that you've called us to be thank you for everything that you're doing among us Thank you for the fantastic things that uh, uh, we've heard uh, preached from this place over these last uh, few months, or perhaps like me, we've listened to online and we've uh, met you in your word. Meet us in your word, we pray. We don't want to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Be our help and our guide in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, let's go. New series that will take us up to uh, Christmas almost the heart of reformation, hashtag heart uh, reform. And uh, uh, let's get tweeting. Some of this stuff is too good uh, to keep inside these four walls. On October the 31st, 1517, just over 500 years ago, 500 years and a couple of weeks Martin Luther famously nailed 95 bullet points, effectively. It was his first attempt at PowerPoint. And imagine one of those lectures when the PowerPoint has got numerous slides and each slide has got multiple bullets on it. 95 bullet points to the door of Wittenberg's Castle Church. It wasn't as unusual as we might imagine because that was a common way of communicating, a bit like one of today's blogs. And so he put his blog up on that castle, wall, on that castle door for everybody to read. So what was it? Was it the political climate in Europe at the time... Was it the fact that many people were disenchanted with the way things were in the church and also perhaps in the world, authority in general? Was it a mighty move of the Holy Spirit or probably all three? But his little blog that day set in motion a movement that in a sense has never stopped a movement that was to change the church and the world, a movement of which we are recipients even today. What triggered in the church and then in society, isn't it good to be reminded that the church changed and then society changed? That's encouraging. Usually it's the other way around in our own experience and our own time. But what triggered the church to change and society to change, began with him stating some truths to a castle wall and all that ensued from then on forward we call the Reformation. What's important to understand is that Luther hadn't discovered new truth. Luther wasn't adding anything to something that already existed. But he was bold enough, articulate enough, courageous enough, determined enough to bring to the fore truth that had by then long been forgotten. Truth that had somehow got lost in the years of institutionalization, human corruption, human propensity for power. Whatever had done it, rubble upon rubble had been built on this truth so that it could almost no longer be seen. Luther said this truth must be rediscovered and we must live out its radical implications. I love this quote. The great Christian revolutions came not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when someone takes radically something that was always there. A revolution indeed. And we're still in the wake of it. It was radical dissension, a dogged determination to grasp truth that had all but been lost, that caused movements like Baptists, I'm so, ooh, flip, I didn't know I was part of this, movements called Baptists, to begin. And in that sense, our presence here is as a consequence of what was happening back then. And sometimes... With all our organizational drag, not just true of churches, true of all human institutions, I think, not just because of our human inertia, it's good to be reminded that we began by radically taking hold of a truth that had always been true. We don't need to look for new truth. We don't need to look for new ideas. We don't need a new vision of what could be. We simply need to take a radical grasp on what is already ours. We have it all. We would do well to rediscover the radical dissension that began our movement. Over the next few weeks then, we're going to look at some of the truths that were rediscovered and reflect on how easy it is for those truths to get lost lost because of tradition, lost because of cultural pressure, lost because of our own sense of comfort with the familiar. All of these things can so easily filter out something that was once crystal clear. And in our day, and maybe it's always been the same, but we like to think about our day as being as bad as it's ever been, don't we? It's never been as bad as this. Young people have never been as bad as this until you read the history and realize they've always been as bad as this. And and human inertia has always been like this. But there is a recognition that we live with some intense cultural pressure. It's not just from without. Cultural pressure comes from within, almost, you might say it's different, but as much from the church as it would with any human organization. You don't have to be part of any human organization for long to hear the phrase, we've always done it this way. Because that brings with it a sense of human security. It comforts our fear of change. It brings to us something that's familiar and therefore feels stable. Or we might say, this is the way things ought to be done. And our justification for the way it ought to be done is because we did it this way in the past. And so there is a inbuilt pressure, even within a community like ours that prides itself as being radical dissenters, don't we? Even in a community like ours that prides itself with being radical dissenters, there is still an inbuilt sense of this is the way it ought to be because this is the way it used to be. What we need to do now is simply to do what we did in the past and then we vaguely remember that quote about insanity being doing the same thing and expecting different results. You've heard that one too. So there's, the, there's this cultural pressure on us not to uh, find the truths that have got lost and there's cultural pressure on us certainly not to give them a radical re-expression but perhaps we're even more aware of the cultural pressure that comes from without the way two christians were treated this last week on the this morning show uh, is an example of the incredible prejudice that's bubbling in our culture against those of christian faith and those that would believe the bible and seek to interpret it honestly and openly it's nothing to do with the issue that they were discussing But what happened was that the interviewees, Philip Schofield and uh, Holly Willoughby, and you can find it by Googling ITV really early, Monday I think it was, uh, and and there'll be all sorts of things on social media about it. Because not just Christians, but even ordinary people were going, why did we treat those people unfairly? And they were treated unfairly because they just wanted to honestly express some Christian opinion. And so there is cultural pressure beyond us that wants to squeeze us into the world's mold and to say to us for heaven's sake don't get hold of truth and whatever you do don't start radically trying to hold on to it even if it has been long established and so we hear the words of paul do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world but be what be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What comes into your mind? Truth comes into your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to tr- test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. Are we, willing, are we willing to mine for truth? To clear away the rubble of whatever pressure is on us, whatever uh, um, ways of being uh, cloud our judgment, to clear away the rubble? And allow truth to be truth. And to say, if it's true, then I will radically apply this to my life. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Are we willing to mine for truth that our culture, tradition, or institutionalization... Sorry, are we willing to mine for truth that our culture, that our tradition, that our institutionalization has hidden from us? Sometimes there's quite a lot of rubble. And for me... This is the lasting challenge of the Reformation. Someone one day said, let's get through all the rubbish and let the truth shine again. That's kind of refreshing, isn't it? It's kind of liberating, kind of a place of freedom. But you need some guts to get there. Today I've called uh, this message, how indulgent were indulgences? Very, as it turned out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, hang on. Luther's key insight was this. What he took 95 bullet points to express, a typical preacher, you might say, was this. Salvation, that is, getting ourselves right with God, having a relationship with Him restored, having our sins forgiven, having the assurance of heaven, having eternal life now and what is to come, having the Spirit in us as a guarantee, all of that stuff, we use a big world called salvation, which is all of that packaged up. Salvation, he says, was not something you could earn, but was a gift that you received by faith alone. That's effectively what he took 95 bullet points to say. Everything that God, that comes under the heading salvation, everything that God gives us is not something we could earn, but was a gift from God. You might say, of course, everyone knows that, don't they? We all know that, don't we? But they didn't. It had got lost under layers of tradition and institutionalization. Well, they're pretty ignorant, we might say. But hang on before we judge them too quickly in Luther's day forgiveness was obtained through penance you would do something in order to earn the right to be forgiven so you would do some acts of charity or you would say uh, certain prayers or you would uh, punish yourself in some way in order to earn the right to receive God's forgiveness to receive God's salvation Not only would you do something to earn it, you would also have the opportunity to buy it. You would pay the priest indulgences. Money, that's where the word indulgences comes from, money in order to get out of purgatory quicker, in order to speed up your forgiveness process. Now, if you were a priest, that's a pretty good deal. Because all of you have some stuff you need to sort out before you meet God face to face, don't you? Well, we can do a deal. And the people were going, well, all right then, let's do the deal. And they would pay the priest, I can see nothing wrong with this, now I'm speaking about it here, and they'd pay the priest money to have their sins forgiven. And you think, how did they get from Jesus the cross and free salvation all the way over here? How did they get there? They got one little step at a time, one little rubble at a time, one little slippage of the truth at a time, and they ended up in a place that was miles away from the truth. Imagine, though, It was an awful way to live. Imagine having to earn your salvation by your own effort. How hard would that be? The reason it would be so hard is that you would never, ever be secure. Because if you earned your salvation by your own effort, to be honest, you could always try harder, couldn't you? And you'd go to bed at night thinking, well, tried pretty hard today. But maybe if I'm really going to earn it, I've got to try a bit harder tomorrow. Or at least tomorrow, do what I did today. And you're caught in this cycle of, I've got, to, I've got to try harder, I've got to try harder, I've got to try harder. And the harder we try, the more nervous we become about, well, have I made the grade? Have I actually earned enough for my sins to be forgiven? Then you say, well, I'd better pay for some of those indulgences as well. Because what if I have done enough but I need to pay this and without paying this, even though I've done all that, that's not worth it. So you start paying. So so you're trying to earn and you're trying to buy forgiveness, right relationship with God. I mean, how messed up is this? But that's the cycle they were caught in. And as a result, you are never secure. You never know that you've done enough. And you've probably heard me speak about this before. That's the same spirit, small s, that created... Child sacrifice all around the world. You never knew you'd done enough, offered to God, small g, enough for Him to appease, uh, to appease His anger, to forgive you. And so you offered more, and then you offered more. It's why people ended up offering the only thing they could think of that was valuable the most, which was their firstborn children. It's barbaric, and it's horrific. But that's the beginnings of the journey. When we begin to think about, we need to earn something that can only ever be a gift. And Luther himself was tormented like this. He was tormented with the non-assurance about his own sins being forgiven because he knew there was always more he could do. There was always extra effort he could put in. And I wonder whether many Christians today, under it all, are tormented in a similar kind of way. Surely everyone knows that it's a free gift. Remember, Luther was addressing Christians primarily. And we'd point to verses like this and say, well, surely everybody knows. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, it's not the verse on the screen, so just listen to this for a minute. It is, but we'll get there. Because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Who made us alive? Christ. He made us alive even when we were dead in our sins. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Who's doing all the work? Who's doing all the saving? What have we done so far in these verses? Nothing. Absolutely. Well done. You're right there. Now, verse 8. For it's by grace you've been saved. What is it? It's a gift that comes through faith This is not from yourselves, not by works or indulgences, or, 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 so that no one can boast. Faith alone. I'm not sure everyone really knows it. Sometimes the way I live reveals that I'm not always even absolutely sure of it, because it is so different to the culture in which we live. We often express lurking doubts in this truth. Have I done enough for God to love me, to accept me? Have I done enough to belong? We don't pay indulgences, but we do try and pay. Have I read the Bible enough this year to earn God's acceptance? Is this bad thing happening to me now? because I wasn't very good then. Everybody's thought like that. Haven't you? Okay, that's salvation by works, right there. We're we're all strung up right there. Right there we're going, I'm not experiencing God's salvation now because I didn't earn it back then. Have I come to church enough for God to forgive those sins? (laughs) It's hilarious, isn't it really? But in our spirits, that's sometimes what we think. And we start playing the game of comparisons. I might not have done enough, but I've done more than that person. So at least in the queue, I'm ahead of them. Which reminds me of the story of the Baptist minister. The gangster died, and um, the gangster's brother went to the Baptist minister and said, I'd like you to do the funeral, and I'll pay you £10,000 if you say that my gangster brother was a saint. Everyone knew he was a liar, a murderer, a horrible chap. So the Baptist minister prayed for a moment and took the money, and, uh, uh, and then he began to think about what he could do. And he got to the service, and he stood up, and he began the eulogy, and he said, this guy... Compared to his brother. (laughs) He was a saint. Have I done enough? We can find ourselves caught in the same uncertainty as Luther. Living with the same unease. Will I be alright? Could I have done more? Yes, of course, I could always do more. And regrets from long ago surface as we come to the end of our lives. And somehow we just can't shake it all off. Because we can't make it add up. Into that world, Luther was hit between the eyes with this amazing rediscovery of truth that had always been there, faith alone. This remains an absolute fundamental building block of everything that uh, we believe in. Salvation, all of that stuff. Faith alone. And it went absolutely viral in those, that day and age. And it's time that it goes viral once more in the church and in the world, because it's liberating. So we understand, faith alone, number one, we cannot rescue ourselves. And this is a sticking point. This is a problem for many of us in the world in which we live. It's super counter rule, that no amount of effort can achieve this for us. Because we live in a world that believes that we can achieve. You are a precious little snowflake, and you can achieve anything that you want to. You can reach for the stars. If you want to go get it, then you can go and get it. If you want to take control of your destiny, then you can do it. Believe in yourself. You're autonomous and capable, and a bit more effort, you will make it. This thinking shapes our relationships, our politics, our identities. It's the biggest story that our culture is telling. Saturday night TV is all about nobodies who work really hard to become somebodies. And we can't get enough of it. We don't tend to think about all the many people that fall along the wayside that were nobodies and didn't become any somebodies in the world's eyes. But we're desperate to identify with this idea that with our own effort, with our own ability, if only we would try harder, if only we would put the effort in, if only we would do that practice 10,000 times, is it, in order to make yourself uh, competent with something, then we will get there. For Ed Sheeran, it worked perfectly well. But we were in Framlingham yesterday for a football match, and all the other youngsters there, it didn't work the same way. It's a crushing expectation. We have created a culture where our identity is utterly locked into what we can achieve. We are taught it every day through the education system, we absorb it like a sponge. You can win, you can make it happen, you can succeed. What's the highest prize in our culture? A self made man or woman. In fact we deride someone who has got wealth or influence or success that they didn't achieve themselves you with me in fact we don't like those people we despise them we got names for them thank you the lie has gripped us and makes it really hard really countercultural to accept that you are powerless that you are enslaved the bible says you are in a predicament out of which you cannot help yourself. You are not able to control your own destiny. You are not able to conquer your own failure. You are not able to rescue yourselves from whatever. That's the unthinkable place for our culture. Because it's the place of greatest despair. But we know that the place of greatest despair becomes the beginning of hope. Do you remember the story of the son who had a great party for a while and ended up with the pigs? The place of utter despair is the beginnings of our greatest hope. If my party's coming to an end with this particular relationship, I'd rather have another relationship to keep the party going for a while than to face the reality. If my money's running out, I'd rather work harder and earn a bit more money to keep the party going than face this reality. Whatever it is, we'd rather keep it going. And if we cannot keep the illusion going, then I will in some way try and cope so that I can pretend the illusion exists, even though perhaps in my heart of hearts I know it isn't. So I do whatever my coping mechanism is. I withdraw or I have a little bit too much wine too many evenings or I shop with money I haven't quite got and I try and create, try to keep the party going. But for as long as the party was going, he had no hope, that young man. And it begins in a place that our culture finds most uncomfortable, and that's that we cannot help ourselves. True hope begins when we realize we cannot rescue ourselves. The Bible's deadly serious when it talks about you being a slave. As a slave, you're totally dependent on outside help, you can't rescue yourself at all. In that sense, we're slaves slaves to sin. And we absolutely cannot help ourselves. I cannot buy or earn or achieve my way to God. You can't even preach your way to God. He doesn't give a monkeys in that sense. I cannot bust my way out of the dysfunctions that make up my life. I can't do it. Honestly, if I could, I would have. No relationship, no success... No detox, no makeup, no image, no lifestyle, no influence, no achievement, no notoriety, no accolade, no religion, no purchase can change the way I am. I am in utter need of God's rescuing. Utter need of God's rescuing. You stand in desperate need before God and only His intervention can rescue you. That's quite a sobering way to start back, don't you think? It's the place of despair. The other side of that same coin, it's the place of hope. Some of you watch that Lifeboat series thing. Evan's been a great fan of that. What's it called, mate? Saving Lives at Sea. That's the one. And uh, nine times out of ten, the people get into more trouble because they do what? They try to save themselves. The Muppets go, it'll be all right, I'll swim, you know? They have an over-exaggerated sense of their own ability. That's true life right there. We have an over-exaggerated sense of what we can solve and sort out and control and put right. The Wi-Fi is completely gone. Let's do this and then we won't need to worry. We have this over-exaggerated sense that that we can somehow fix it. Uh, And so uh, we struggle to save ourselves and get ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper until we're exhausted. And I think most people live like that, with that sense of exhaustion, having found no way out. A drowning man clutches at straws. Honestly. But we clutch at things that are slipping away as fast as we are. That's the trouble. That's the issue. That's the problem. So, faith alone, this great rediscovered reality, begins with the recognition that we cannot rescue ourselves. Secondly, though, despair becomes hope because God has intervened because God's intervened you see at just the right time when we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners Christ died for us since we've now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved through him Mark comments about this when he talks about what Jesus was doing the son of man he came to seek and save the lost coming not to uh, serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom as a payment as a, as a payment there's these muppets in the middle century paying to get their sins forgiven it was already paid Justification is like a legal concept to be declared right. That's the the word that Luther was using. Justification by faith. I'm put right with God by faith. I'm saved by faith that somehow that which was locking me in chains, that which was keeping me bound, that from which I could not be rescued, He Himself has rescued me from it. The New Testament keeps reminding the Christians who had the humor and propensity to go back to trying to earn their salvation. That's what the book of Galatians is all about, when Paul gets absolutely out of his tree with them. He's totally mad because he was saying to them, look, you remember the the time when you believed that faith alone in Jesus was what saved you. Why are you adding all these works to it now? As if by these extra works you can earn your right to God. And he said some very rude words in Galatians that you ought to read about, that you can't say in church, in the Bible, but it would be bad to say them in church. But they're there because he was angry. He was angry that they'd been lost and bewitched and gone back. Remember at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizens in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant, the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Remember what it was like. It's an, absolutely, it's an absolute gift that we, have, we, with, having done nothing to deserve it and could do nothing to earn it, are given this gift. And this is the longing of the Father. The longing of the Father today is that you would know this gift, that you would know that it's absolutely free. You have to go through the despair to get it. You'll have to recognize that, yeah, you can't do this by yourself. You can't can't live it by, you can't make it by yourself. You can't earn it by yourself. You certainly can't afford to pay for it by yourself. But God has stepped into our world. And I love the way again and again and again, it talks in the scriptures about once and for all. What Jesus did on the cross was once, you can't keep doing it. It's been paid for once and it's for all. And that's you. So it's been done and its implications go on for all people the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives for God only Jesus can rescue us he alone is our saviour we won't what we wear won't save us did you know that what you achieve won't save you things that we're tempted to put our trust in won't come up with the goods it's all pretty ridiculous really when we uh, think about it so this question whatever your heart clings to And confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. What Martin Luther was saying, he said, there are things that you will put your trust in because they will seem to you more secure than Jesus Himself. What is it that you are tempted to put your trust in today? What situations in your life are you looking to something other than Jesus to resolve? Where are you thinking if only I did this, if only I worked a bit harder, if only that person wasn't like that, if only that situation wasn't like this. Uh, And we're we're looking to others, to circumstances, to situations when actually rescuing salvation comes from God and from God alone. To put it another way, what could you not live without? What could you not live without? One of these quotes that um, everyone claims they said it, so they probably all said it. God is all you need till God is all you've got. Faith alone. We cannot save ourselves. God has intervened. Finally, just to be clear, it's not the faith that saves you. Everybody's got faith. We all have faith. We all put our trust in something or in someone. We can trust ourselves. We can trust our morality. We can trust our success, our popularity, our giftedness, our charisma, our money, our influence. We're all putting our trust in someone. Even atheists have faith. The atheists, just like us, are putting their faith, their trust in something. They're putting their trust in nothing, that there is nothing. They're putting their faith in the fact that nothing exists. In that sense, I think sometimes atheists exert a greater faith to believe that it's all nothing than our own faith. And it's interesting, uh, uh, knowing atheists and communicating how hard it is for them to remain consistent In their lives. That there is absolutely nothing. That's not a judgment on them. We are often as inconsistent in our faith. But it is a recognition that it's really hard to live purely in a way that acts as if God and nothing else beyond us ever exists. It's faith in Him. That phrase comes over 30 times in the New Testament. The summary of what they were teaching here in Acts in in the prison when Paul was preaching to the guard. They replied, believe in what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We live with confidence and certainty and hope because it's not dependent on us, but it's dependent on Him. Do you know one of the greatest um, things for some of you organizers and planners? Who's an organizer and a planner? One of the greatest stresses is to go on a trip with someone who's less organized and less planned as you, leading the trip. Okay, that's that's a really, really uncomfortable trip. In this life, It is not dependent on us or anybody else, but absolutely dependent and certain on Him who has died and is risen as proof that He knows what He's doing. To build confidence that He knows the way. To build certainty in all that we can trust. It's quite a helpless feeling that there is nothing that we can do, nothing, to get ourselves right with God. But it is a much more liberating feeling to know there is nothing I need to do either. You with me? Quite a long time ago, before we had any staff here other than me, uh, I went with Simon Barrington out for a works lunch. I don't know, he obviously didn't have anyone he could have a works lunch with either, so us two loners thought we'd go and have a lunch just before Christmas to... um, just because. We got to the end of the meal, uh, and we went to pay... And the waiter said, the bill's been paid. There's nothing to pay. Look, Wasn't anyone there we recognized or we knew? If that was you, we're going to go out for lunch a week Thursday and we're going to be at Milsom's. <laughs> Somebody had paid. They paid our bill. And it was kind of weird because you're looking around and you're ready with your card and you kind of want to pay. It's kind of weird to walk out without paying. The the waiter's reassuring us, don't worry, the, the bill has been paid. The only thing you can do when someone's already paid the bill is to chill out. It doesn't matter how many times you try to pay something that has already been paid. If it's already been paid, you can't pay. Let's stop living like we've got something to pay. Let's stop living like we're trying to pay because we're like muppets trying to pay for something that has already been paid. Trying to pay with our loose change when Jesus has paid with his own flesh and blood and it doesn't work. So we're coming into land. That's because the fires have gone off. That's a big indication it's time to finish, isn't it? Mark, let's reset the fire timers back to Harris' sermon schedule. Number one response, faith alone. Chill out. Chill out, man. You can't do it. You cannot get yourself right with God. All that effort you might be putting in emotionally and physically is an utter waste of time. Chill out. It's a gift. It's a generous, superb gift. It's by grace. It cannot be based on works. And as Paul writes to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to people. (laughs) So chill out. Chill out. And secondly, live in the joy of it. It's easy to lose the joy of it, isn't it? It's easy to live like we've got a load of stuff to pay when it's all been paid. That was the, the story of the unmerciful servant. Is that the right words? You know, the one who owed loads of debts and the king let him off and he went out getting the money off all the other people. He owed something that could never be repaid and he gets let off the debt and he goes and tries, starts collecting the money. He's trying to pay when it's already been paid, when it's all been paid. And we can lose the joy of it. And even David, the man after God's own heart, he lost the joy of his salvation after messing up. And he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of, of all this, that this is a gift. It's nothing I can do other than receive it by faith. Uh, and then all the kind of legalistic people at this point go, you've got to be really careful, Simon, because if it's all a gift, and if you tell people to chill out, they'll go and live, well, the hell they like, because they know they'll be forgiven. Well, there's nothing new in that. Paul was addressing that with those early Christians. See, Paul, some of the early Christians were saying, you can't keep preaching grace, Paul, because if you keep preaching grace, people will go, well, it doesn't matter if we sin, because if we sin, then we'll be forgiven. So, in fact, if we sin even more, then we'll be forgiven even more, and that will be even a greater sign of God's grace. Chill out, go out and live as... No. No, Paul makes this brilliant point about living in the generosity of it. He he, he says, "What, what shall we say when people are saying that? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What he's saying is when the reality of what Jesus has done for you has touched the deep parts in your heart, there will not be a moment you'll go, I'm going to carry on sinning. When you understand how much has been paid and what it's been paid for, you're all in. You're all in because he's done it all. And we live to love, to serve, and to honor Jesus, because he's given it all to us. He's given it all to us. Let's pray, let's pray. Let's be quiet for a moment. Maybe you've lost the joy of it all. Maybe in these moments it feels like you're working pretty hard. You're keeping going with a lot of stuff and it's feeling like you've got things to prove. You're trying to prove something to yourself. Prove something to somebody else. Prove something to God. And the Spirit's just saying, hey, chill out, chill out. Let it go, let it go. Maybe right now you go, hey, I need that joy. I need the joy of it all. I need the joy of it all. (coughs) Thank you, Lord. Lord, work in us the depths of what you've achieved in our lives. Work in us the reality of the gift that is salvation. That we might radically live out of that place, out of that identity, out of that truth. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.